The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for inviting me here to talk about generosity. I spent the last few weeks thinking about what I was going to give to you all in this lesson. And I'm so focused on what I'm bringing that I get here. And I'm just overwhelmed by what I've received just in the last hour or so. I'm really grateful to Dan for his testimony. That's the best thing you're going to get from today. I'm really grateful to get to be led in worship by Kaylin and Brett. It was such a gift. And then just seeing so many of you who I know in other contexts, it's really always a blessing to be able to come here. So thank you for all of that. Uh, it's already great day. But since we're talking about gifts and giving, uh, it's probably a good idea to mention Christmas in July, if you haven't already had that on your calendar. Um, I found out this holiday, or pseudo-holiday, has actually been around for a long time, almost a hundred years. Some girls at a youth camp in North Carolina invented Christmas in July, at least that's the theory, way back in the 1930s. So it was the middle of summer camp in North Carolina. It's probably hot as blazes, and they all think it's a good idea to put on Santa hats and tinsel and stockings and have a party. And people like this idea. It kind of caught on in the 1940s. There was a movie called Christmas in July, kind of spread. And so throughout the 1940s, people would just get together in the summer, and they'd have little parties. It was an excuse to get together, and they'd exchange gifts. It was just a fun thing to do. And then in the 1950s, the retailers caught on. And they realized this is a great opportunity to get rid of our summer inventory and make way for our fall inventory. And, well, fast forward 75 years, and we now have Amazon Prime Day and Target Circle Week. And these are all the direct descendants of what began as a a pretty innocent gift-giving tradition. Leave it to the capitalists to ruin Christmas. We really want Christmas to be this pure thing, I think, this pure gift-giving, and and mostly the December version here. I think it's because we want there to uh, be something that exists outside of this regular exchange-based economy, outside of the market logic. We fantasize about a pure, non-commercial Christmas because what we deeply long for is a pure gift, a gift that has no strings attached. But Christmas as we know it, whatever the July version looks like, but mainly the December version, man, every gift has a string attached. And if you're like me, the gift-giving season is a time of anxiety, precisely because I know that there are strings attached to these gifts, and I really am not sure how to respond when the gift comes to me. Yeah, you're not obligated to give anything back, but you know that really you are obligated to give something back. But how much do you give back? And when do you give it? And what if someone surprises you? There just aren't really clear laws and rules, and it makes us uncomfortable. Maybe it makes us anxious. And I think it's because because we've been formed in such a way that when something comes to us, we feel indebted, 
And we've been formed to pay those debts right away. We don't want debts hanging over us. Because if someone, if we owe someone something, we know that they have a claim on us. And we are somewhat less free because they have laid claim to us by this gift that we didn't even ask for in the first place. It's like a slavery. But is the pure gift even possible? Is it possible to give a gift with no strings attached? Is it really possible to receive a gift and nothing be expected in return? I don't know. You'd have to sort of give the present and then drop down dead. Despite our dreams, our hopes, our fantasies encompassed in all those Hallmark movies about a pure gift, the fact is gifts have always entailed obligation. Gifts have always included a kind of reciprocity. Our intuition in receiving that gift that we owe someone something, that we're in their debt, it isn't wrong. That's not just our economy creeping back in. This is part of the deep logic of gift giving, and it's really closely connected with our humanity. Even the word itself, give, has a double meaning. It actually means both give and take. And even though we don't use it as much in the latter sense, I'm sure you'll recognize it. When the wind blows across the Oklahoma plains, the trees give which means they receive that wind and they bend, right? When you're walking down the crowded hallway and someone's coming towards you, you have to give way to them. You're receiving, you're taking. So even the word itself has both senses of give and take, give and receive. Because to give a gift is to enter into a relationship with someone. And the truth is, again, as much as we might think that a pure gift would be great, to give and truly expect nothing in return would be a disaster. It would be dangerous. The German word gift is poison. That's what it means. G-I-F-T in German is the word for poison. Because a gift without expecting anything in return is toxic. I mean, maybe you think, oh, a love of a parent for a child, that's a pure love, expects nothing in return. But a lot of you guys are parents. We do expect something in return. <laughs> you know, we want them to take care of us when we're old, yes. But like in the meantime, we'd like a little respect. You don't have to get me a present, but maybe a card every once in a while or a high five. We all want a little something. And we know if a parent were to just give and give and give to their child and not make any sorts of, uh, you know, strings attached, well, we call that spoiling a child. It ruins them. There's something bad about a gift that has no strings attached. It can be harmful or dangerous. And that's because what it means to be human is to be in these back and forth relationships. It's to be interdependent. And there's no way out of that. It's how God created us. And so Christmas, whether in July or December, is one of the last vestiges of 
this gift giving in Western culture. I was surprised to learn that anthropologists actually believe, not all of them, but many of them, believe that before our exchange economy, our market economy, that actually most human societies were built on gift giving. You might think before money, there was a barter economy, you know, one pig is worth two chickens or something like that. But what they found is it wasn't built on that kind of exchange logic. This work was famously done by a French anthropologist named Marcel Mauss, published a little book in 1925, which is still a classic in anthropology. It's just called The Gift. And what he argued, looking at uh, South Pacific societies and Native American societies and even ancient Romans and Europeans, is that uh, these, er these early peoples, these archaic peoples, would uh, circulate gifts around. I give you a gift. You don't pay me back right away. Maybe you pay me back later. Maybe you don't ever pay me back, but you pay that on to someone else. And it's because these societies weren't built on individuals sort of uh, making independent transactions with other individuals, but these societies saw themselves as, well, a unity, all interconnected and all tangled up. And so goods and services weren't merely exchanged from person to person, but they circulated, they moved around. And this is what blessed society, it's what kept it going, is not the movement back and forth between two individuals, but actually the circulation in the whole system. I might, you might give me a, a pot of soup, or a fancy blanket, and now I'm indebted to you, but I don't necessarily give you anything back for that. Maybe a thank you. That would be nice. But instead, I'm in your debt. But it turns out you were in my debt for something from three years ago. And on and on. This is how good friendships work. You're probably familiar with this. Uh, my best friend and I, we go out for coffee or lunch once or twice a week. I pay one time, he pays the other time, or sometimes he pays two times in a row if there's some issue. There's this kind of back and forth, but it's not ever quite even or equal. Um, and I'm always feeling like he's probably paid a little more than I have. So, I'm, you know, I'm trying to do the next one. But it turns out he feels that way too, <laughs> that I've paid a little bit more than he has. We'll never figure out, we'll never be completely even. In fact, the only thing we can do is just go out to coffee again. The only thing we can do is keep the relationship going. I think this is how good marriages work too. When each partner feels slightly in debt to the other one, that they're doing a little more, pulling a little more weight in the relationship than I am. Um, both parties have to feel that way. And the minute you think, oh, I'm doing more here, that's when problems start to creep in. So gift giving is like our economy, our market economy, in the sense that there's a back and forth and exchange, but there are these major differences, two specifically. One, it's not an equal exchange. We're not exchanging things that are of equal value. Again, the most basic response to a gift is thank you, a verbal acknowledgement. And maybe respect or honor, but how do you value that? Also, when my friend and I go out for coffee, we don't always get the same thing. 
Sometimes it's a $3 coffee. Sometimes it's a $10 lunch. Could be something else. It's not equal in value. So the first thing is the exchange isn't equal. The second thing is it's delayed. I'm not immediately paying you back for the gift. I'm not, uh, it could be weeks, it could be months before I return the favor to you which keeps us constantly in debt to each other, which requires a kind of trust in each other, a faith or a promise that even though you haven't made good on it right now, I know you're good for it at some point. And sometimes I don't even pay you back directly, but in some way I find a way to pay it forward. So gift logic is not so individualistic, it's not so transactional between persons, but it's a larger network of interdependence. Now I believe the church is called to live out just this sort of vision, which is sometimes called a gift economy. Isn't this the vision of the prophets? Isaiah, in Isaiah 55, he says, here everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It's a free gift to anyone who has need. And a passage which I'm sure is dear to your own hearts from Revelation 21, where John the Revelator picks up on Isaiah's prophecy. To the thirsty, I will give water as a gift from the springs of the water of life. We actually see this gift economy modeled in the early chapters of Acts in the Jerusalem church as goods freely circulated between those who had and those who didn't have. Now, this is not a condemnation of our market economy or capitalism. It, it seems to be working really well. I think the world's probably a better place for it. But we've been called to this richer, this higher thing that's built on it or a seed within it. Something that will get beyond that individualism, that materialism, and that unites the spiritual and the material. So with this in mind, I'd like to turn briefly to a classic text from 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9. You've probably heard the gift-giving uh, text in 2 Corinthians used before the offering. Uh, you know, let us lay by in store week to week. But actually, the gift-giving in 2 Corinthians is not so much about the weekly practice or act of worship of giving, but this is Paul fundraising. He's fundraising for one big special collection. He's gone around from church to church, Rome, uh, Thessalonica, Corinth, all the churches that he has uh, leadership in, and he's asked them for money, money that they're going to send to Jerusalem because there's a famine, because the saints there are in need. Sometimes this is called the Jerusalem collection. But I think there's more going on here than merely relief work. I think what we see in these two chapters in 2 Corinthians is uh, the, the foundational theology for generosity, for the gift in the New Testament. 
So I'm just going to read, not the whole thing, but just a few verses, and hopefully you'll pick up on what's going on here. So 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that has been granted to the churches of Macedonia. For during a severe ordeal of affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For, as I can testify, they voluntarily gave according to their means and even beyond their means, begging us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in this ministry to the saints, and this not merely as we expected. They gave themselves first to the Lord and by the will of God to us. These Macedonians, and that's the church of Thessalonica, they're not rich, they're not affluent, but Paul says they've become wealthy through their generosity. We're clearly outside of normal market forces here, which only values goods and services. Something other than material wealth is blessing and enriching the lives of these people. In the same way, the money that they contributed to this fund is more than mere currency. <coughs> now, money is good and important, and those saints in Jerusalem who are starving would have welcomed those funds. I mean, they are absolutely necessary. But the money is more than just money. It's also a token of the Christians themselves. It was a symbol of a relationship between those Gentile churches and their Jewish brethren, a sign of this network of mutual aid that Paul is trying to establish. And notice also, right there in the beginning of the passage, that this whole process is kick-started by God's gift. Most of our translations say God's grace, but in Greek the word grace is gift. It means the same thing. And what is it that God has given? What is God's gift to the Macedonians? Everything. <laughs> Creation. Life itself. Here, specifically referring to the surplus wealth that they're able to share with their brothers. God is the giver of all good gifts. And as much as we value those things that God has given us, our life and our health and our incomes and all this, it too is just a token, a sign of God's great love and of the gift that he offers, which is himself, ultimately, just like the Macedonians offered themselves. Creation and all these other things that he's given to us are given in order to draw us back to him with an expectation of reciprocity, an obligation. And Paul says as much in these next couple of verses, verses 8 and 9. I don't say this as a command, but I'm testing the genuineness of your love against the earnestness of others. For you know the generous act of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. The life of God is a model for our own lives. Though he was rich, he became poor. Now Paul is actually at pains through these verses to caution against what's sometimes called sacrificial giving, giving till it hurts. 
He actually says, you don't have to give until it hurts. God wants you to have what you need to live, and out of your abundance or surplus, share with others. We don't just give and give and give. Remember, that can be toxic. But we give for the sake of relationship. We give in such a way that promotes these bonds. Jesus, yes, became poor for our sake, but he will be enriched again through the relationship that it's fostered. And this isn't a pure gift from the Macedonians either. Paul actually says in another text on the collection, Romans 15, hey, you Gentiles, you actually owe the Jews. You owe them because they have given you all these spiritual blessings. They gave you the Messiah. They gave you Torah. They gave you Scripture. And so, in response to their generous gift, you're going to give them money, material blessings. Again, doesn't fit into our normal market logic. Material things, spiritual things are interchangeable here, according to Paul. And we should remember that as we think about generosity. It's not ever just this or just that in the gift economy. Skipping down to verses 12 and 14. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you. Here it is, but it's a question of fair balance between your present abundance and their need. So that their abundance may be for your need in order that there may be a fair balance. Once again, the giving of the gift is about relationship. It's about unity. Right now, you have a need and I have an abundance, but soon I'm going to have a need and you're going to have an abundance. Maybe I need material things, or maybe I have material things but not spiritual things, and we can trade. Or maybe it's something else, or maybe someone else will need it down the road. But you see, it's not equal, and it's not immediate. There's a delay. And then finally, from chapter 9, just a couple of verses. Chapter 9, verse 6, the point is this, Paul says, the, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Here we hear that investment language most clearly. You're giving, you're sowing in order to reap something, in order to get something. This is not a pure gift with no strings attached. You're giving because you want something. But what you want is good. What you want is a relationship. The Gentile churches are generously giving a gift to the Jewish churches because they want a relationship across those ethnic lines, across those cultural lines. And sometimes it requires a gift to jumpstart that. And is that not exactly what God has done in the gift for us? 
It's not a no strings attached. The string is he wants us in loving relationship. The harvest language here isn't just the ordinary economic harvest language, but it's actually a reference to a Jewish story. A story which the Jews have given to the Gentiles as part of that gift of the story. It's the story of the manna in the wilderness, the bread from heaven. He's actually, Paul's already quoted from Exodus 16 in this passage, so we know he's thinking about the manna. The manna is this free gift of God. Israel has just been liberated from the economy, the slave economy of Egypt. And for 40 years, they have to rely on God's grace because you can't grow food in the desert. Daily, they collect their allotment of manna. And here we see in this story the first economy of grace or economy of gifts since Eden where people are learning to fully trust in God's good gifts. But it isn't the pure gift. Because as soon as Israel settles in the land, what do they do? They begin the process of paying God back. And what does that look like? It looks like sharing their life with him, shaping their society to look like God's own generous life, sharing their abundance with each other and with the poor. God has given himself first. He gave us the manna when we needed it. He gave us life before we had it. Before we could do anything, he gave us everything. And we might call this before giving. Or maybe shorten it to just for giving. It's where our word comes from. We tend to think of forgiveness as a response to brokenness, a response to sin. And maybe in some perfect world, we would not have forgiveness because there would be no sin. But you see, God has always been forgiving even before we messed up because God gave before. He gave the first gift. And that before gift of himself structures our lives and structures the very universe. And because he has been a forgiving God, we are a forgiving God people. Not giving with no expectations, but giving with an expectation. The expectation that through this gift, we can be together. We can be unified. And not just me and you, but me and you and you and you and us. We give help to others, or we give to help others. We give to be in relationship to others. We give an expectation of something far greater. But like God, we don't sit around and just wait for that to come right back to us, wait for that immediate gratification, wait to be paid back. We keep giving first because we are in the process of becoming four givers. I'll leave you with one of my favorite Christmas hymns. Unfortunately, it's not in the the canon that we sing. It's a French hymn. But it's based on this passage in 2 Corinthians 8. It's called Rich Beyond All Splendor. And this is just two of the verses. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender. Sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became poor. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. 
Emmanuel within us dwelling. Make us what thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee.